Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Luke and I'm joined in the bunker by the man who Betty Friedan called a shining example of everything she wants a man to be. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, say something to the people. Who? I give a brief pause while our audience Googles Betty Friedan to check that reference of yours. <laughs> okay, after looking her up, yeah, I can roll with old Betty. Yeah, we all you do is roll with girls. But anyways, all right, well, I want to thank everyone who contributed to the Beer Fund after our anniversary show with a few shout-outs. We've got Linda from Deerfield, Michigan. Never heard of Deerfield before. Yay, Linda from Deerfield! <laughs> Stay warm up there. We've got Mike from Adelaide, Australia. Mike wanted to remind us that Foster sucks and no one in Australia actually drinks it. I wish I could say the same thing about Budweiser in America, but Chris brought 36 of them to the bunker today. I love Budweiser, and Mike, I hope the dingo didn't get your baby. <laughs> Let's see. I want to thank Randy from Mountain Brook, Alabama. Randy writes he likes to listen to the show while avoiding his wife and driving his two kids, Rachel and Ben, aimlessly around Birmingham. You know, Randy, I wanted to say thanks for contributing, but I'm not sure this is the right show to be listening to with your kids. But Don't hey. listen to him, Randy. You're raising two fine individuals there as you drive around the BM. Yeah, it's better than the stuff my dad listened to when driving me around. That's true. All right, so uh, finally we've got Caitlin and Tommy writing in from the hellhole that is Memphis. Everyone listening in Memphis, I've never been to Memphis. I'm just telling you what Caitlin wrote in. You don't have to write in and tell me how great Memphis is, okay? Thank you so much for throwing some shekels into the beer fund. When my wife saw the response, she said, I guess this is a total waste of time with that loser Chris. Chris, I think she nailed the description of you. I think you're uh, making stuff up there, Luke, as you're prone to do. Your wife loves me and is glad someone comes down to the bunker to keep you off FBI watch list. Thank you, everybody, for your donations. We appreciate it. Luke's had trouble finding his wallet, so I haven't seen any of it. But <laughs> so that conversation is possibly for a bonus cast on the website. All right. Well, today we're talking about a battle that decided the fate of not just nations, but an entire continent. We're talking about the battle for Quebec. Or Quebec, better known as the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. And when I started researching this show, I had no idea that the battle for Canada included ethnic cleansing. But it's all in the show today, ladies and gentlemen. But before we can discuss the ethnic cleansing of Nova Scotia, we've got to do the most important thing. What's that? Find a Tim Hortons or some poutine? Mmm, poutine. Go Leafs! Crack open a few cold ones. Okay, today we're drinking La Fin du Mont, brewed by the great people at Unibrew out of Quebec. I'll go ahead and tell you this is one of the best beers I've had. This beer is a classic triple that comes in at 9% alcohol. It pours a slightly cloudy blonde. It is one of the best beers in the world. I really love this beer and consider it the real champagne of beers. Now, this isn't for every all you hopheads out there. It's only got 19 IBUs, but this is one I recommend for everyone. Anyways, Chris, what are your thoughts? It's my first Belgian. Well, not actually. That's a good line. It's very good beer. As with a lot of Belgian-style beverages, it has some citrus at first. Then you get a little bit of coriander on the back here. You should be drinking the beer out of a snifter or tulip-style glass to get the full flavor of it. Some people suggest pouring extra head on these styles of beers to release more of the CO2 and get more of the flavor going. You're welcome. I've got CO2 all over my table and floor, all over the microphone. This is great. I want to thank everyone at Unibrew for making this excellent beer for us tonight. And with 9% alcohol by volume, I fully expect to lose Chris by the end of the show. So if he quiets up at the end, you know why now. Well, if I ain't drunk, then the podcast probably wasn't funny. Usually fewer sound effects than singing. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to give this one, I'm going to go super high, 4.5 bullets out of 5. What do you get? 
Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'll go with you. Four point five out of five. All right, and now let's transport ourselves back in time to the 1750s and the French and Indian War. Quick to the time machine. Don't forget your towel. <laughs> The British achieved military victory in Nova Scotia, formerly the French colony of Acadia. They drive French forces from the region. The British governor is determined to ensure that the territory remains securely in British hands. He orders the systematic expulsion of all French-speaking settlers from the region. Acadians, who had called the land home for a century, are dispossessed of their farms and fishing boats. Whole villages are emptied and families herded to the coast. The operation is carried out with chilling efficiency. Over the next three years, 10,000 of them are shipped to the British colonies. Many Acadians make their way to Louisiana, where they become known as Cajuns. Wolf believes he may soon die and fears his failure to act will bring him disgrace. Finally, in September, his attention is drawn to a path leading up steep cliffs to the plains just west of Quebec. In an audacious nighttime maneuver, he orders 4,500 men to scale the steep cliffs. It takes them less than five hours. The element of surprise works. By dawn, the British assemble on the plains of Abraham just outside the city walls. Wolfe employs a novel formation, spreading his men out in two ranks instead of the traditional three to cover the half-mile width of the plains. Montcalm knows that the British are the more disciplined soldiers. But the British line seems especially thin. He believes that a column of troops can smash it. Ah! It's a classic European battle that will depend on the skill and precision of each side's infantry. In October 1995, Canada experienced a crisis. The province of Quebec, where the vast majority of Canadian French speakers live, held a referendum on the independence of Quebec. The citizens of the province nearly voted to remain part of Canada by only 50.58%, less than 1%. That's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on right now is the vast sums of money spent on the campaign by both sides during this referendum. Tens of millions of dollars was spent on this campaign. It involved tens of thousands of man-hours, caused a crisis in Canadian and international politics, and was somewhat indecisive when you consider that 60% of French-speaking Quebecers voted for sovereignty from Canada. All this money, all these man-hours, all these crushed hopes and dreams, all of it was a direct result of the battle we're going to discuss today. Naked force, raw power, echoes through history and reverberates into our time. And if you don't believe me, 
ask a Native American. I don't want to. The war was the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. The battle was the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. It was more than just a battle. It was a war that decided the character and created the problems of the modern Canadian state. In the early 1700s, the population of New France was 20,000. And when I say New France, I'm talking about modern-day Cape Breton Island, Quebec, and the vast majority of land east of the Mississippi River in modern-day United States. We're talking about an area that covered modern Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Louisiana. There's a map of the land the French claimed in North America on the website. I encourage everyone to see it for themselves because the sheer amount of land the French were claiming was unbelievable, especially when you consider they only had 20,000 men on the ground. Or people, not that's all people. Women and children, too. At the same time, in the early 1700s, the 13 original British colonies in North America comprised 400,000 people. 400,000 to 20,000. By 1756, when the Seven-Year War began, the population of New France stood at 70,000 French colonists, while the 13 American colonies were populated by 1.5 million British settlers. Think about these numbers. The French are at a huge numerical disadvantage, and they know it. The thing is, they knew about their disadvantage for a long time and had prepared for it by building a large number of forts along major interior waterways. At this time, rivers were the primary method of transportation in the interior. I want you to think of them kind of like interstates are today. The forts effectively blocked British settlement in the interior of their own colonies. Land the Anglo-Americans insists is their own. We own this, not French. But there's a French fort in the middle of it. What are you going to do, right? Moreover, the British have a counterclaim on much of the same land the French are now occupying. So the French forts, they serve as trading posts for the second center of French power in North America. And this is also a weakness, though. They depended on Native American allies to form a counterweight against the sheer number of British colonists. The problem for the French is the Native Americans are not totally loyal, and they play one side against another. Even when they are loyal to the French, they don't comply with French authority the way a French settler would. They, they act independent. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And there is another problem. If you look at the map of North America at this time, you'll see Britain controls a large portion of the eastern seaboard, right? So that's where all the supplies are coming from, from the ocean. Yeah. Whereas France controls the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence River, which leads into the Great Lakes and ultimately the entire interior river network. The Mississippi River, the Ohio River, all these rivers and the forts at the end of them blocking the Americans and the uh, British... All of them depend on the St. Lawrence River for resupply and reinforcements. The St. Lawrence is the root on which all of New France grows. If Britain, which at this time was one of the strongest maritime powers in the world, takes any part of the St. Lawrence River, all of the interior of New France under that part that's been cut off is cut off. In short, New France is in a tenuous position, and her leaders know it. Chris, what do you think about our backdrop to war here? Oh, I love this period in history. Um, just pre-colonial America, or, well, colonial America, but yeah. pre-American revolution. Yeah. It's a great period in history. I always wor- I always think about the population levels, like you said. Uh-huh. You know, there's 1.5 million British settlers. Yeah. And then you have twenty to 40,000. At this you know, time, right before the war, we have 70,000 Frenchmen. Yeah, and you know, I also want to jump in here and tell you, think about the battle map. I mean, we're going all the way from Louisiana to modern-day Quebec City. Right, and even above that, really, if you count the Maritime War, that's a huge area for combat. We're talking yeah, about that. but none of it's populated. It's well, a huge area for no, combat. None of it's, it's populated by Frenchmen. There's a large number of Native Americans there. Yeah, right? but there, it's not like it's not like set piece. There are set piece battles, but it's not like 
they're getting assaulted on every front. That's where you have guerrilla tactics and Indian fighting, Indian tactics coming to ambushes and, you know, the American riflemen. Well, you were going to find out there is a lot of guerrilla tactics in our lead up to our battle today. So we're going to check it out. In 1753, Virginia settlers set up a fortified storehouse only 37 miles away from a major French fort. The French viewed this as a threat and acted accordingly. The Marquis Michael Ange Duquesnay, who was appointed Canada's governor in 1752, moved to block the British advances. He decided to build four forts at the forks of the Ohio River in and around what is modern-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And in doing so, he put Canada on a war footing. His action could only be viewed as a provocation by the British. Duquesne raised 2,000 soldiers to build the forts from the Canadian population alone. This was a tremendous buildup in manpower for a colony that only had 11,000 men of military age. Moreover, over 400 French settlers died by accident and disease in the construction of the four forts. A huge segment of the 11,000. So, so OSHA's going to want to see him about uh, work safety conditions. <laughs> yeah, 1750s, there's no OSHA. You just die. It's just so brutal back then, you know? All right, so it costs well over $30 million in today's money to build these forts, and there are only 37 miles from Anglo-American settlements. So he's basically blockading the rivers. Exactly. He's blockading the natural lines of advancement for the British settlers. All this was done over the will of native-born French settlers who begged Duquesne not to build these forts. So the native French that live in Canada and (laughs) North America are like, please don't do this. Please. I'm going to build a a wall (laughs) to keep the British out. It's going to have a big, beautiful gate. (laughs) All right. Everyone could see it was leading to war. No one saw it more clearly than Robert Dinwiddie, the governor of the Virginia colony, who reported the provocation to the authorities in Britain. The British cabinet responded to all British governors in North America, Remove the French from any settlement they build on colonial property. The problem here is, there were no clear demarcations of where French sovereignty ended and British sovereignty began. Dinwiddie, as governor of Virginia, received more detailed instructions. Historian Fred Anderson picks up the story. First, Dinwiddie was to demand the French withdraw from the post they had built. Second, Dinwiddie was authorized to erect forts within the king's own territory and repel force with force. Finally, if the French refused to leave forts they had built within the Majesty's dominions, Dinwiddie was authorized to enforce by arms their evacuation. End quote. Accordingly, the dutiful Dinwiddie sent an emissary to demand the French leave Virginia property. The man he sent was named George Washington. Wait, wait. Washington? George Washington? The very same. He was only 21 years old and a major in the Virginia militia. At the time we're talking about, he was just put in charge of negotiations between two giant empires encompassing millions of people. I feel like I could have handled that at 21. Uh, I, let's talk about that. Compare that responsibility to the average 21-year-old today. Chris, when you were 21, your biggest problem was where to drink on any given night. What do you think of Washington's duties? Could you have handled it at 21? Like I just said, yes, I could have. <laughs> I love drinking. I bet I could have solved I could have solved this French and Indian British thing in like uh, fewer than five pints of beer. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. I'd drink those Frenchies underneath the table. <laughs> Then that, you take, that's your solution? Then you, you take the drink. fort while they're drunk. <laughs> they got nothing. Okay, so here's what really happened. So Washington visits the French forts as a diplomat and makes a request for the French to leave, which they don't, of course. Now, Washington isn't just an envoy, but he's also a spy. 
albeit he's a legal spy, he's not doing anything illegal. But as he visits the French forts, he notices a huge amount of building supplies laying around, a clear indication the French are planning on expanding their presence. So there's like some Home Depot bags over here, so maybe they had to go to Lowe's to find that one type of screw head that Home Depot didn't have. Yeah, in Fred Anderson's book, he said literally there was just stacks and stacks of like lumber, like treated lumber for the time, however they treated it. Just stack. It was obvious they were <laughs> hey, what, wildly expensive. That's a lot of lumber. Yes, it is. We, oui, Monsieur. <laughs> <laughs> so Washington, you know, he goes back. He reports all this to Governor Dinwiddie, who consults with the British government. The British and American colonists decide to build a fort at the forks of the Ohio River, the same place the French are currently building forts. <laughs> so. This is reminds me of playing Risk with you. We both want to take the same place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so Luke, where are you going to put all your pieces? In Australia. <laughs> we don't have any countries in Australia. Well, what's my... Uh, Siam. You don't own Siam, China. No, yeah, the Ukraine. And I'm going to go straight to Australia. <laughs> straight to Australia. That's true. I'll see you there, Mike. <laughs> all right. So, Washington requested to lead the expedition to build the fort. Because he knew that area better than any other Englishman. Right, English subject, or American, because he's been there, okay? So, accordingly, Washington's appointed the regiment's lieutenant colonel and raises 200 men to build and garrison the fort he's going to build. The regiment he raised was poorly clad, poorly supplied, and wholly untrained. These are just guys off the street. And when we we say Washington built a fort, it was basically like an earthen fort, right? Well, he hasn't built it yet. I'm going to describe it. Okay, okay. You're getting ahead of us. Now, Washington isn't worried. He's got plenty of time to train his soldiers, and that's just what he starts doing. Washington was training his American volunteers on April 22, 1754, when his terrified sentries reported hundreds of French troops were advancing down the Allegheny River in a flotilla of canoes and rafts, complete with 18 cannon. I would have loved to have seen his face when he found out the French were descending on him. Washington took a minute and began to quit quit making faces, He's just, he's just like, oh! I'm sorry, you just told me a flotilla of Frenchmen in canoes with a cannon are coming down the river. And you're thinking, uh, George Washington's really going to soil his drawers, being like, yeah, they ain't going to be there. Uh, like, 800 something Frenchmen are coming at you. You've got 200 ill trained like, men. They're probably in canoes in bright red, uniform, red and blue uniforms. You're like, we could take these guys. What color were the British uniforms at this time? Uh, probably bright red. <laughs> yeah, bright red. All right, anyways. On the night of May 27th, Washington and his ragtag band of colonial Americans marched through the night through thick woods in heavy rain to attack the French camp. When Washington spied the French position, he noticed the French were just starting to cook breakfast and completely unprepared for an <laughs> Tired attack. Tired from all that canoeing. <laughs> it's probably actually hard all day <laughs> in, in, like, woolen uniforms. Yeah. The French had made another mistake. They had encamped in a small valley and allowed Washington to gain the high ground outside the camp without a fight. Well, you get tired from all that canoeing, you don't want to climb up a hill. (laughs) Firing started when a few Frenchmen took pot shots at the Virginians massing on the ground around their camp. So, oh, there's somebody up there, I'm going to take a shot. The Virginians then unleashed a volley into the French ranks in reply. The firefight soon ended when the wounded French officer in charge called for a ceasefire. One Virginian was dead and three wounded. The French had suffered 35 casualties. <laughs> Those guys can't row canoes anymore. <laughs> no. The French, no, here's what happened. It was This was a big, this blew up in Washington's face. So he thinks, I just want a great Yeah, victory. I just. Watch what happens. Back down the river. The French officer in charge informed Washington, he was on a diplomatic mission, buddy. We're not here to attack anybody. And you just fired <laughs> on a diplomat, which is a cause of war. 
in international law. <laughs> she looked at him and be like, you're coming right for us. I saw you. <laughs> He, his job, this guy's job, was to deliver a letter to Washington calling for a withdrawal of all Englishmen from the French king's land, right? Which, okay. So Washington was <laughs> translating the letter. He's just translating it. When one of his Indian allies abruptly stepped up to the ensign, the commander of the French troops, his name was Joseph Coulon de Filiers de Jumonville, and smashed his head open with a hatchet, <laughs> completely... <laughs> Without warning. There you go, friends. That's how we're going to draw. Yeah, I'm just going to go over here and translate this letter. He talked to Queequay right here. Wow. I don't even know what to say. After he had surrendered, this guy had surrendered already, okay? And this happens. <laughs> On a diplomatic mission. <laughs> diplomatic. You mean uh, aggressive negotiations with a hatchet to the head. This was horrible. Killing a messenger on a diplomatic mission was worthy of war, according to the standard of international law at this time. Washington's face was a mask of shock. The native warriors then proceeded to kill the rest of the French wounded, <laughs> scalping and stripping them of arms and clothes. <laughs> I am laughing because he's laughing. I don't think that's funny. That's just imagine funny. Washington standing there with his wooden teeth, thinking about cherry trees back in Virginia, just watching these Indians scalp these Frenchmen that he had just attacked accidentally a few minutes ago. It, if you were, it's not even funny. If you had been in Washington's shoes, your your gut would be in your shoes. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There would be a frog in your throat because your career is over, basically. Well, yeah. If anybody finds the body, all right. Now listen, only. Only one of the wounded men survived. Washington didn't know, didn't know why it happened. He had no clue this was going to happen. A Native American chief of a very small splinter group named Tanagrisson led the murder of the French. This one chief of a very small Indian group had effectively declared war on his own behalf and on behalf of Virginia, and by implication the British Empire, all literally under the nose of the shocked 21-year-old George Washington. <laughs> Hey, That's a bad day. Hey, George, let me talk to the, let me talk to the French guy. Okay, I'm translating his letter. All right, I'm just gonna take him right over here. Whack. <laughs> now, all right, we gotta be serious. Why did Tannen Grissom do this? Why do you think he did it? Because he was the chief of an exiled tribe comprising only about 80 people. All right, Itchy Jerry's tomahawk son. finger. <laughs> yeah, itchy tomahawk finger. He wanted to restore his own position in the Iroquois League a powerful regional Native American grouping by aligning with a powerful ally, an ally like the British Empire. If Good he idea. forced the British to go to war with his enemies, he would regain his former position as a powerful chief of a large tribe. In the meantime, Washington was left to pick up the pieces of his career he had destroyed before it even started. He tried to minimize the incident by writing misleading reports back to base. Yeah. Oh, he went Walter White on that, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was like, oh, yeah. what's going on? Nothing. <laughs> We're all fine here. How are you? <laughs> and then he shoots the <laughs> he blaster. Boring shoots, shoots conversation anyway. <laughs> Washington had also received 200 more reinforcements Enforcements. In the meantime, Antana Grissom advised him that the local native tribes, tribes Tana Grissom had no direct influence with whatsoever, <laughs> would support Washington if he attacked Fort Duquesne. How many of these beers have you drank? Not, not enough to be these, laughing this hard. I just picture Washington there with the, next to the psycho. It's like just declare war on the French Empire. 
And they're like, oh, we got more men now. Hey, I got a better idea. Hey, George, why don't we send some guys down there in these new canoes we found and tell them, hey, we need another diplomatic mission to come up here. Stop. All right. So, so Tanagris says, let's attack Fort Duquesne, a fort where the French defenders outnumber Washington's entire force. So they're attacking a fortified position. At this time, you're supposed to have you're supposed to outnumber defenders three to yeah. one. He's yeah. outnumbered by the defenders, and he's going to go attack. <laughs> hey, you guys want to come back over here? We're all just hanging up down here, down this little valley. Yeah, get in the canoes, roll up here. All right, Washington did it. Washington prepared to attack the fort by moving men and supplies towards Fort Duquesne. A problem soon developed. The local Native Americans decided not to support his attack. The problem was compounded with Tanagrisson, the man who had started this entire conflict, along with his small band of followers, abandoned Washington, leaving him without valuable native guides to the area, which he depended on. (laughs) Church store called, running out of Tanagrisson. Yeah. Meanwhile, Washington was receiving reports that French reinforcements were pouring into Fort Duquesne. His own men begged him to retreat. George agreed. He and his men marched for two days straight through the summer heat on barely discernible trails and finally arrived at a small palisade fort named Fort Necessity. This place was more of a ditch and a broken down fence around it than a fort. Most of his men were too sick to fight. It rained on them the night of the July 2nd. Only 300 of his 400 men were fit for duty. At 11 o'clock on July 3rd, the French appeared with over 600 men and immediately launched their attack. Imagine being George Washington right now. You have to believe your career is over. You have to think, I'll be lucky to hold on to my farm after this disaster of a campaign. Here's how one historian describes the French attack on Fort Necessity. Quote, Within minutes, the French had taken positions on the hillside overlooking the fort, firing down on the men huddled in waterlogged trenches. The defenders' weapons malfunctioned due to the rain, and soon the Americans became little more than targets. By nightfall, 30 of them were dead and another another 70 had been badly wounded. The survivors broke into the rum supply and drank themselves blind. This is Chris' go-to response to any crisis, by the way. Cause of and solution to all life's problems. That's true. Any sense of order and subordination fell to pieces. Then something miraculous happened. The French ordered a ceasefire and proposed a parley in terms of capitulation. The French commander had more reason to be merciful than Washington knew. They were almost out of ammunition. If I'm watching it, I'm hoping they're not bringing a Native American. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold this letter. (laughs) All right, so listen. Under the terms of the surrender, the defeated Americans were allowed to keep their personal property and return to Virginia, promising to set free the prisoners they had taken in Washington's fight with Jumonville. Washington signed the terms of surrender, which were written in French, in which he did not understand at all. Who does? In the surrender terms, Washington accepted blame for the killing of Jumonville, a French diplomat. Washington basically admitted to committing an act of war. He had given the King of France, Louis XV, all the reason he needed to declare war on Great Britain. (laughs) In the months that followed, first the British and then the French began a military buildup on a massive scale in North America. Keep in mind, the two empires are not technically at war, so there is no naval warfare or blockade to restrict buildup. The British sent 750 regulars to reinforce the colonial defenses, while the French sent around 3,000 men, including some of the best soldiers in the French army. On May 29, 1755, the Anglo-Americans decided to strike. 
British General Edward Braddock had about 2,100 men, which he decided to divide a cardinal military mistake. Braddock split his army in two and led about 1,200 men in a flying column towards Fort Duquesne, the same fort Washington had failed to capture. The distance between the lead element of the 1,200 men and the main force ultimately was 60 miles, an almost impossible distance for foot soldiers to cover on a day. By July 9th, Braddock was nearing the fort when he was attacked by 900 Frenchmen. In the first five minutes of the battle, the French commander was killed by a random musket shot. This led to the confusion of the French forces, but not the Indian forces. They had taken up positions in the woods along the road and suddenly began to open fire from the woods on both sides. The English redcoats made perfect targets for the Indian fighters. The British, hearing the firing at the front of the column, had rushed forward to meet the French and became entangled on the 12-foot wide road. It was fish in the barrel. The British were unable to see the camouflage Indians sniping at them and began to fire volleys into the woods. The Anglo-Americans stood under the withering assault for three hours until General Braddock was shot in the back and unhorsed. By then, almost a thousand British men had been killed or wounded. The Indians and French had suffered only 23 dead and 16 wounded. For the panic, exhausted British, the next two days of flight became a new kind of hell. Men too seriously wounded to walk were left to die as their comrades stumbled down the road without food or water. An eyewitness describes the battle like this. Before our men could get within musket shot of the French, the Indians, in ambush, surprised our army by firing at the general and other officers. And as soon as we had begun the attack, which was very fierce, the Indians immediately gave the war hoop and fired from the thickets. Our men gave way and were rallied by their officers, gave one fire and then retreated in the greatest confusion imaginable, until they had thrown Dunbar's regiment into complete disorder. Their officers, with a great deal of trouble, rallied them a second time. When they stood a fire from the French, and without returning it, retired in great disorder with Dunbar's regiment, and left their officers a sacrifice to the enemy, and out of sixty of them but five escaped, being either killed or wounded. The Virginians engaged the enemy for three hours, but were obliged to retire. After having five horses shot under him, General Braddock was wounded in the lungs, and he died on the fourth day after the battle at Wills Creek. George Washington later recalled the defeat this way, quote, Our poor Virginians behaved like men and died like soldiers, for I believe that out of three companies that were there, only 30 were left alive. End quote. As the shattered remnants of Braddock's flying column linked up with the main force, the commander ordered the destruction of all the supplies, mortars, and ammunition the army had, and they retreated to Philadelphia. It was an English disaster. You destroyed all the supplies? Braddock destroyed all his own supplies, yeah, as he fled. That's kind of dumb. Well, he doesn't have an army really to protect him anymore. And He's got some guys to... left. <laughs> well, I'm just telling you what happened. I wasn't there, okay? <laughs> Blame you. <laughs> I'm sure you would. You and my wife getting together lately? Yeah. All right, so anyways, the army fled. But what happened to the American civilians the army had been protecting, right? Pennsylvania's frontiers now had no defenders. The gates were thrown open. Historian Fred Anderson describes the result. Quote, Ohio Indian raiding parties now brought devastation down on the frontiers of two of the richest, most populous colonies in British America. The frontiers of the central colonies collapsed when the first parties of Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo warriors in the company of French troops descended on the frontiers of Pennsylvania and Virginia. The goal was to bring anarchy to the backwoods communities. 
In the initial onslaught, 1,500 frontier farmers were killed, and an additional 1,000 were taken captive during the last months of 1755. As the frontiers emptied of population, the raiders continued to probe eastward into more densely settled areas, always in search of captives, scalps, and plunder. A report in August 1756 noted the Ohio Indians had taken 3,000 English prisoners. It is clear that by then, every Indian town housed substantial numbers of captives. According to careful modern estimates, the frontier counties of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania lost between one-third to one-half of their populations between 1755 and 1758. 4% of the area's inhabitants were killed or captured. Grown men seized in raids were simply slain. Sometimes, sometimes they were ransomed. The Americans whom Indians tended to retain were women and children. This became for many settlers the preeminent symbol of Indian barbarity. Because every abduction tore a hole in the life of a family, those lucky enough not to have been taken were filled with hatred of Indians. So much suffering left frontier settlers bereft and grieving, but also enraged, and made them willing to contemplate drastic measures aimed at recovery or revenge. Western settlers by the thousand fled their farms for the safety of settlements farther east. Thus began the greatest refugee crisis in the history of the colonies and the most widespread British North America had ever known." End quote. But what does this look like on the ground? What's it look like if you're living through it? It's got to not be good. It's not good. So I want to let the audience out there know. I want you to see what it was like for settlers who were raided. I want to tell you a story about a tiny settlement that really was just a scattering of farms centered around a a creek named Fishing Creek. A woman named Barbara McKinney was one of the settlers, and this is her story. Quote, The settlers' dwellings were gathered into clusters, of which there were some three or four within a short distance of each other. In August 1761, Miss Barbara McKinney ventured out alone to milk her cows. While she was milking, the Indians crept towards her on their hands and knees. She heard not their approach, nor knew anything till they seized her. Sensible at once of all the horror of her situation, she made no effort to escape, but promised to go quietly with them. They then set off towards the house, holding her fast by the arm. She had the presence of mind to walk as far off as possible from the Indian who held her, expecting her neighbor Melbury to fire on the Indians from inside the house as they approached. As they came up, Melbury fired, wounding the one who held Barbara. She broke from his hold and ran, and another Indian pursued and seized her. At this moment, she was just at her own door, which John Ferguson imprudently opened that she might enter, and the Indian shot him dead as he presented himself. His mother ran to him and received another shot in her thigh, of which she died in a few days. Melbury, who saw that all their lives depended on prompt action, dragged them from the door, fastened it, and repaired to the loft, prepared for a vigorous defense. There were in all five guns in the house. Sarah Ferguson loaded for Melbury, while he kept up a continual fire, aiming at the Indians wherever one could be seen. Determined to affect to their object of forcing an entrance, some of the Indians came very near the house, keeping under cover of an outhouse. Miss McKinney, meanwhile, having failed to get into her house, had been again seized by the Indians and was doing all in her power to help her besieged friends. She would knock the priming out of the guns carried by the Indians, and when they aimed to fire, she would throw them up so the discharge might prove harmless. Melbury continued to fire whenever one of the enemy appeared, and the Indians kept themselves concealed behind trees of the outhouse. Several were wounded by his shots, and at length the Indians retreated, carrying Barbara with them. 
She now resisted with all her strength, preferring instant death to the more terrible fate of a captive in the hands of fierce natives. Her refusal to go forward irritated her captors, and when they had dragged her about half a mile, she received a blow with a tomahawk, which stretched her insensible upon the ground. When consciousness returned, she found herself lying upon a rock to which she had been dragged from the spot where she fell. She was stripped naked, presumed raped, and her scalp had been taken off. By degrees, the knowledge of her condition and the desire of obtaining help came upon her. She lifted up her head and, looking around, saw the wretches who had so cruelly mangled her, pulling ears of corn from a field near to roast for their meal. She laid her head quickly down again, well knowing that if they saw her alive, they would not be slack in coming to finish the work of death. Thus she lay motionless till all was silent and she found that they were gone then with great pain and difficulty she dragged herself back to her house one of the blows received by barbara had made a deep wound in her back the others were upon her scalped head melbury and the others assisted her to bed next preparations were made for defense in case of another attack the guns were all loaded and placed ready for use in committing the house to the care of neighbors melbury sallied forth rifle in hand and took to the woods he made his way as quickly as possible to taylor's fort at lansford end quote now this is important because it shows us how settlers responded to raids they immediately made their way to forts to raise their alarm and seek help the men there at the fort informed of what had happened immediately set about preparations for pursuing the indians who had thus violated the peace by assailing unprotected women and children the next morning a number of them well armed started for the indian encampment at the shoals the indians were gone but the indignant pursuers took up the trail which they followed as far as broad river here they saw the indians on the other side but did not judge it expedient pursuit to pursue them or provoke an encounter as the indians position was so strong in the meantime william mckinney Barbara's husband reached his own house a little after dark. The scene that greeted his eyes was truly heart-rending. The slain man, John Ferguson, still lay there, and in the same apartment the dying mother and his wife, Barbara, more like one dead than one living. Mangled almost past recognition, the blood still gushing from her wounds and drenching the pillows on which she lay, no fictitious tragedy could surpass the horrors of this real-life event. End quote. This was what it was like to be raided. And there was cruelty on both sides, and we're going to see some devastating cruelty on the side of the British later in the show. I did not leave it out, just so you know. But I want you to notice how the men at the fort pursued the Indians who had attacked Fish Creek. This is the cycle of violence. One violent act leads to another and another, always escalating until a cataclysm. These are the scenes which make for intense brutality on both sides. There is a cycle of violence that begins in situations like these that is hard to stop once it gets going. It's much better to follow Jesus and Immanuel Kant's advice and treat people the way you want to be treated. After the defeat of General Braddock, the English turned their attention to Acadia, which is modern-day Nova Scotia. The vast majority of the people who lived in Acadia were of French descent or native Mi'kmaq Indian descent. They had been ruled by Britain since 1713. By 1755, French speakers outnumbered Anglophones by 10 to 1. The news of Braddock's defeat and the ravaging of the Pennsylvania frontier by Indians came to Acadia. At the same time, thousands of colonial American troops poured into Acadia in order to destroy two French forts on the island. The 2,000 New Englanders and 270 British regulars easily took the two French forts, leaving the French population defenseless. Did they send George Washington and Queequeg in to negotiate? <laughs> no, they're still in the doghouse. They're, they're still in <laughs> They didn't bring them up here like, George, we got to take these two forts. Go there and negotiate. Next came the tragedy. Keep in mind, colonial Americans are hearing reports of slaughter from their colonial frontiers. Fred Anderson explains what happened next. Quote, Governor Lawrence demanded the Acadians take an unconditional oath of loyalty. 
when they refused, Winslow's provincials and Mockton's regulars swept down on their communities, rounding up as many of them as they could catch, women and children included, herding them onto board ships and deporting them to mainland colonies from Massachusetts to Georgia. In order to discourage them from returning, the Anglo-Americans systematically devastated their farmsteads, burning buildings, killing or dispersing livestock, and breaking the dikes by which the Acadians had reclaimed land for agriculture. By the end of 1755, approximately 7,000 Acadians had been deported as de facto prisoners of war. Two-thirds of the Acadians in the peninsula escaped the first deportation. Some made their way to French-controlled areas, others established refugee settlements in New Brunswick, still others took refuge with Mi'kmaq Indians, beginning a long guerrilla struggle against British power in the peninsula. The British used companies of rangers, mainly raised in New England, to wage ruthless campaigns aimed at clearing Nova Scotia's land of all Mi'kmaqs and any refugee Acadians they harbored. When British forces seized the French fortress of Louisbourg in 1758, a second great roundup followed on Isle Royale, which is modern-day Cape Breton Island, and also modern Prince Edward Island, netting most of those who had escaped in 1755. The goal was ethnic cleansing, to transform the ethnic character of the entire province. Most Acadians never returned home. They called the event Le Grand Derangement. Many settled in Quebec and the Bayou country of Louisiana where they formed the basis of the Cajun population. If you have a French last name and your family is from Louisiana, they likely lived through this. Think about that. Chris, do you have any idea this took place before I told you about it? No, I've never heard. Of, I've never heard of this uh, period where the British were on a mission to wipe out all of Nova Scotia. <laughs> Nova Scotia. I had no clue before I researched this. Battle. I've never been to Nova Scotia. These are the kind of stories that no one else knows about. The ethnic cleansing of a Canadian province. Here at Battlecast, we're not afraid to tell you the horrible stories. No one else will. Meanwhile, back on the mainland, Pierre de Rigaud de Vaudreau was appointed Governor General of New France in 1755. If I messed up his name, I apologize. Born in Canada, Vaudreau had a unique and non-French view of the war. He knew the American colonists vastly, vastly outnumbered the French settlers. His solution was to enlist the Native Americans as an offensive force, using them to raid the British colonies up and down the coast. Providing the Indians with modern weapons and supplies from the string of forts along the interior of North America, this strategy was highly successful. The Indian raids caused American colonial refugees to pour into the eastern city centers, forcing the British to attempt to defend the colonies across a broad front. The Indians would often bypass the British forts and attack weak targets of opportunities in a classic tactic of guerrilla war. Occasionally, French militiamen and regular troops would join the Indians in the raids, lending their classical military training to the unique guerrilla tactics of the Indians. In 1757, Vaudreau gathered together one of the largest French forces assembled in the conflict at Montreal, with well over 2,000 native warriors combined with about 6,000 Canadian militiamen and French regulars. There was a problem, though. The second-in-command of French forces in New France was the Marquis Louis-Joseph de Montcalm. A man who had been a military officer his entire life and had a distinctly European view of warfare, put succinctly, he didn't like relying on the Indians. The things they did affronted his personal value system, whereas Vaudreau didn't give a damn what Indians did so long as they served New France. For example, when French allied Ottawa warriors made a few raids into American colonies and returned with prisoners whom they ate in ritual feasts at Fort St. Frederick, Mm. Montcalm was aghast. He viewed the behavior of the natives, which the Ottawa warriors did, right at the fort, 
under his nose, so they're not hiding it at all. It's completely barbaric. What do they do? Bring him a plate? <laughs> and he's like, oh, this is really good. What is this? <laughs> he He's sitting on the wall. He hates this, right? He's the second in command of the entire New France. <laughs> well, if you're cooking people outside my fort, I'm going to be a little upset also. Oh, well, you... He was revolted, okay? And Vaudreau's like, yeah, whatever, get to it. Here, you guys need some barbecue? (laughs) He's handing them sauce. It's hard. It's crazy. you got to think, they work in concert, so now you have a huge problem at the top of the French war effort, right? This was a major source of conflict between the two men. Another problem was Montcalm was the leader of the troops in the field, but not the commander of overall strategy, (laughs) all right? So Montcalm is put in charge of the Native Americans he dislikes and forced to carry out the policies of Vaudreuil, which he regards as dishonorable. Things came to a head on August 10th, 1757. Montcalm had captured Fort William Henry near Lake Champlain. Sent it out for more white meat for the Indians, huh? (laughs) Horrible. After cutting off communications and bombarding the fort for three days, Montcalm offered the English honorable terms of surrender, which the British commander, Lieutenant Colonel George Monroe, accepted. According to the terms of the surrender, the British soldiers would be allowed to leave the fort with their personal property and firearms as long as they promised not to fight again for 18 months. Very gentlemanly. Yeah, they put some paprika on and, you know, seasoned up before they left. <laughs> After concluding the surrender, just go easy on those Le Fin du Mans, all right? <laughs> After concluding the surrender, Monroe and Montcalm had a handsome dinner complete with the best of the wine that remained in the cellar of the officer's mess. So they're drinking together, they're having a grand time, beautiful dinner, everything's going great until the next morning. Fred Anderson explains, quote, The next morning at 5 o'clock as the long column of surrender troops prepared to march away, the Indians took what they believed they had earned. The assault was brief, vicious, and chaotic. Within minutes, the corpses of between 70 and 185 soldiers lay scalped and stripped on the road and in the woods. As many as 500 more were taken captive. Then the warriors abandoned Montcalm and the French. The reports of survivors convinced British authorities the killing had been Montcalm's calculated blow against defenseless prisoners. No British commander in North America would offer any defeated French force the option of surrender with honors of war for the rest of the conflict. The Anglo-Americans called the event the Massacre of Fort William Henry, end quote. Or advanced Washington diplomacy. (laughs) (laughs) The results of the massacre was immediate. Vaudreau and Montcalm both condemned each other in letters to the French authorities. The king himself resolved the dispute in April 1759 after Montcalm won a great victory at the Battle of Ticonderoga, Ticonderoga, in which the French suffered 377 casualties while the Anglo-Americans suffered 1,851 casualties, a huge loss for a time when armies usually numbered between 6,000 and 10,000 men. This was a great victory for him. Louis XV chose Montcalm to lead the defense of New France in a European-style war without the Indians anymore. They still used them, but in European-style warfare. Set-piece battles. Yeah. Montcalm was to cease to use the Indians in guerrilla tactics at all and concentrate on defending New France. By then, Montcalm's position was becoming desperate. The British were attacking his supply lines. The St. Lawrence River, the route from which all New France was nurtured, was under siege. On August 26, 1758, Fort Frontenac, the naval base guarding the head of the St. Lawrence on Lake Ontario and the depot from which all of France's interior forts was supplied, fell to the British. 
Now, there were other supply lines the French could use to maintain communications, but it was a huge monkey wrench in their entire system. The fall of Fort Frontenac sent a chain reaction throughout New France. The first reaction came two months later and was the worst setback for the French yet. The fall of Fort Frontenac allowed the British to conclude peace with the Indians of the Ohio Valley with the Treaty of Easton in October 1759. Remember, the Native Americans depend on French resupply for all their arms. Without the fort to deliver equipment, they are cut off and easy prey for the Anglo-Americans. Now, the British didn't have to worry about attacks on Anglo-American settlements in Pennsylvania and Virginia anymore, because they just made peace with the guys that were doing that. This freed troops for offensive campaigns in the heart of New France. We're not trying to defend this huge, <laughs> massive border anymore to please our civilians. Yeah. We can go on the initiative now with those troops. Screw you guys. We're attacking over here. <laughs> Moreover, the stream of terrified refugees would cease. The chain reaction continued. Without his Indian allies, the commander of Fort Duquesne was no longer able to adequately defend his position. On November 23rd, he set the fort on fire and leveled the walls. Then he retreated to Fort Michaud. The French system, which had been explicitly built around strong points and dependence on native allies, was coming apart, blowing up in Montcalm's face the way a well-functioning machine will have problems that lead to more problems that lead ultimately to disintegration. Things fall apart. <laughs> yeah, they do. I like this guy. He's just like, all right, we can't maintain the fort. Burn it down, guys. <laughs> Let's turn on the thong song and tear this place apart. Uh, I wonder what that looked like, a massive <laughs> fort burning. Probably be amazing. Epic probably be a spectacular sight. Oh. Yeah. In early 1759, the British renewed the assault on New France's weakened perimeter in an attack on what is modern-day Quebec the heart of New France, in a three-pronged assault by way of Lake Ontario, Lake Champlain, and up the St. Lawrence River. First, General James Wolfe, a charismatic commander who was instrumental in taking the French fort at Louisbourg, would lead 8,000 troops from Louisbourg with a powerful naval squadron in support to take what is modern-day Quebec City. Next, General Geoffrey Amherst would lead 11,000 men in an attack on Montreal, Meanwhile, General John Prideaux and 5,000 men would mop up French forts around Lake Ontario. So the British are leading 24,000 men against the French at a time when the entire population of New France was only 70,000. Many of them were already deported, and many more were women and children. Things are looking bad for the French. Chris, it's like the time you dated that beautiful blonde girl. Things were looking bad for you. We could all see the writing on the wall. You mean she was awesome? Anyway, this is a huge force for Montcalm to delay, let alone stop. War is often compared to a balance, and we can see the British pouring men into their side of the scale, tipping the odds ever more into their favor. This was the beginning of the end. Now, if you look at a map of Quebec City today, you'll see that Quebec is a choke point for the St. Lawrence. Even today, the St. Lawrence River is the most important waterway in Canada. Now, why is Quebec City important? Because the river constricts at Quebec, where there is a major promontory there. Promontory. Luke, what's a promontory? It's high ground that protrudes into the water. Put succinctly, Quebec City commands the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes. If you remember from the book Dune, Paul Atreides says, He who destroys a thing controls a thing. This is a fundamental truth. If you control the shipping on the St. Lawrence, you control all the rivers behind it. It's the key to unlocking New France, and General James Wolfe wants to unlock it the way teenagers dream about women. If you destroy something, how do you control it? If you can destroy a thing, you can control a thing. 
You are the master of it. Oh, well, yeah, if you can You're denying destroy it, it to anyone else. That quote was like, if you destroy it, you control it. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It makes complete sense. You yeah, if are you taking can't. authority of the object you're destroying. I guess. You guess right. James Wolfe is marching on Quebec with 8,000 men and a powerful Navy attachment, and Montcalm was waiting for him. He planned to use his Indian allies, not in the hit-and-raid tactics they excelled at, but as auxiliaries in the defense of Quebec. I want to be clear about what I'm talking about when I say Quebec. I don't mean the modern province of Quebec. I mean modern-day Quebec City, where the city is located. Now, Montcalm intended to make Wolfe wear himself out in attacks on entrenched defenses, holding out until winter and the freezing of the river forced Wolfe's fleet and his troops to withdraw. Accordingly, Montcalm abandoned two more forts, so he's, he's shrinking the perimeter, Fort Carillon and St. Frederick. The French defensive perimeter was shrinking. On June 28th, Wolfe landed his troops on Isle d'Orleans, an island in the river of the St. Lawrence that is directly above Quebec City. The enemy was at the gates. At first, Wolfe paused and assessed his situation. In a letter to his family, he acknowledged the strength of Montcalm's position. Quote, My antagonist has wisely shut himself up in inaccessible entrenchments so that I can't get at him without spilling a torrent of blood. The Marquis de Montcalm is at the head of a great number of bad soldiers, and I am at the head of a small number of good ones that wish for nothing so much as to fight him. But the wary old fellow avoids inaction and clings to his trenches. End quote. I want to emphasize the fact that these armies are constantly skirmishing and raiding one another in a series of small raids and battles, numbering a few men on either side. Here's how one British sergeant major describes the skirmishing. On the 29th of June, the French sent five fire ships down among our fleet, but they did no damage. The same day, we marched about six miles and encamped that same night inside of the French army, and likewise inside of the town. General Moncton's brigade and a party of rangers landed on the south side. We had a small attack by which we had three killed, two wounded, and four taken prisoners. On July 5th, a canoe filled with Indians raided one of our barges, stealing the barge and wounding two men. On July 8th, we landed on Quebec shore without any interception, and we marched up the river about two miles when the grenadiers had just sat down to eat and detached a small party of rangers to guard the skirts of the woods before a large party of indians surrounded them killed and scalped 13 wounded the captain and nine privates they likewise killed and wounded 16 of the royal americans we got only three prisoners and we killed only two of the savages on july 12th wolf began shelling quebec not the defensive lines or the guns on the walls but the city itself Wolf was deliberately provoking Montcalm, desperately trying to goad him out of his defenses by deliberately terrorizing the civilian population. Fred Anderson explains what happened next. Quote, the bombardment continued for 68 days until most of Quebec's buildings were shattered or burned, but no attackers sallied out to avenge the city's suffering. In desperation, Wolfe made one attempt to force his way through Montcalm's defenses, a frontal assault on the lines at Beauport on July 31st. It ended in failure with 210 men dead and 233 wounded, end quote. An eyewitness reports on the failed assault on Quebec. On July 31st, we marched to battle with 13 companions of grenadiers supported by about 5,000 battalion men. As soon as we landed, we fixed our bayonets and beat our grenadiers' march and so advanced with our flags in the wind. During all this time, the French cannon played very briskly on us, but they didn't fire their small arms from their trenches until they were sure of their mark. Then they poured their small shot like showers of hail upon us, which caused our brave grenadiers to fall very fast. 
Brave General Wolfe saw that our attempts were in vain, so he retreated to his boats again. The number of killed and wounded that day was about 400 men. In August, stymied by Montcalm's patience and mastery of defensive operations, Wolfe again tried to make him give battle by attacking the undefended farming settlements below the city, burning churches, houses, barns, and mills, making refugees of the entire civil population by allowing his frustrated troops to give rein to their worst impulses. Here's how one sergeant major described the destruction of civilian property in Quebec. The 21st day of July, all the grenadiers crossed over to the island of Orleans, and we set the town on fire, which burnt all the next day, a very pretty sight. Some of our shipping went to pass the town, but they fired so hot, they were obliged to turn back. The same day, we went to get our plunder, which we discovered on our march around the island, consisting of gowns, shirts, petticoats, stocking, coats, breeches, shoes, and some cash. All of it would have fetched us upwards of 500 sterling. On August 4, 300 of our men proceeded down to St. Paul's Bay, where there was a parish containing about 200 men, who had been very active in distressing our boats and shipping. At 3 o'clock in the morning, Captain Gorham landed and attacked two of their guard units. In two hours, they drove their guards all from the cover of the wood and cleared the village which they had burned, consisting of about 50 fine houses and barns. We destroyed most of their cattle and everything else of value in the settlement. In this pillaging, one man was killed and six wounded, and the enemy had two killed and several wounded who were carried off. From thence they proceeded to Mal Bay, where they destroyed a very pretty parish, drove off the inhabitants and livestock without any loss, after which they made a descent on the south shore and destroyed part of the parish of St. Anne's and St. Rowan where there were very beautiful houses with farms and loaded the vessels with cattle, after which they returned from their expedition. At the end of the month-long orgy of destruction, what one of Wolfe's men called a war of the worst shape, an estimated 1,400 farmhouses lay in ashes. At least one massacre of civilians occurred, an episode in which a captain of the 43rd Regiment ordered his men to kill a group of 30 Canadian prisoners and their parish priest. The Redcoats scalped the corpses, a practice Wolfe expressly forbid, but they did anyway. Wolfe's own views of the, quote, Canadian vermin were expressed in a letter that spoke of the pleasure he would take in seeing them, quote, sack and pillage and justly repaid for their unheard of cruelty, end quote. Still, Montcalm refused to take the bait. In his towering fortress, he looked down with contempt on Wolfe, literally and metaphorically, daring him to attack his strong points again. The travesties on the French population were so extreme that Wolfe's own subordinates began to hate him because of his willingness to attack civilians and the destruction he had unleashed on the French. The Wolfe's going all out. He is going all out. Taking it to the mattresses against French. Big time. And Canadians. Still... The French and their Indian allies skirmished with the British in running interminable small battles. Listen to the story of one infantryman. On August 11th, there was an engagement between our scouting parties and the Indians. Our people drove them off. We had a great number wounded, several very badly, but there were few killed. One man of the 35th Regiment saw an Indian fire at him, but missed him. Then he leveled his piece and fired at the Indian and missed him likewise, upon which the Indian immediately threw his tomahawk at our man and missed him, whereupon our soldier, catching up the tomahawk, threw it at the Indian and leveled him and then went to scalp his head. But two other Indians came behind him and one of them stuck a tomahawk in his back, but did not wound him so much as to prevent his escape from them. He was paroled after the war. At the end of August, Wolf came down with a severe sickness. It was caused by 
horrible fevers. Suddenly, on September 5th, the fevers were all gone, and Wolf immediately jumped out of bed and ordered five battalions into the ship on the St. Lawrence now! It was like he had woken from his sickbed with a divinely inspired plan. Da, da, da. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the best part is, he told no one what his plan was. Not his subordinates, not his friends, not his family. He wrote no letter. The plan was conceived, written, and executed all in Wolf's own mind. He asked for no help, and he received none. You're saying he's just making it up as he goes along? I think he planned I think he was sick, and he faked being sicker than he was, and he thought out what <laughs> he was. I'm sick! Now listen, here's what he did. On September 7th, Wolf sent his troops upriver to a small cove on the shore below Quebec. It was a cove with a narrow track angling up the 175-foot-tall bluff, where only a small guard and a little breastwork opposed the British landing. Behind the little guard camp of a dozen tents was the Plains of Abraham, a plateau less than a mile wide that swept gently upward towards the towering walls of Quebec two miles away. This was the Achilles' heel of the French position. This was where Wolfe would checkmate the French or die trying. If Wolfe can get his men up that track, he will be behind the French defenses, nullifying their advantage of high ground, attacking Quebec from the south where the defenses were substantially weaker and the ground way more level. This is a brilliant move, and the fact he kept his mouth shut about it is even more brilliant. (laughs) Now, General Wolfe's troops are in painfully cramped quarters on warships and transports where they waited for four days. Now, I know this doesn't sound like a big deal, but this is 1759. There is no plumbing system. Imagine the smell and lack of privacy on a ship like that. On the evening of September 12th, Wolf flipped the switch of his plan. He informed his astonished Navy crews that he had no intention of attacking the defenses of Quebec. We're and, astonished! <laughs> and intended to land far downriver at La Anse au Foulon. Wolf's men began to board at 9 o'clock. Wolf led the boats downriver himself with 1,800 troops as a spearhead. Several small vessels carrying ammunition and other supplies would follow in half an hour's time. Thirty minutes after that, the balance of the troops would follow in the larger warships. On September 12th, Wolfe commanded 4,441 well-trained troops. Montcalm had 4,500 soldiers to oppose him, but many of his men were ill-trained militia and not as disciplined as Wolfe's hardcore regulars. The tide and the moonlight were perfect for a landing in the early hours of September 13th. Dark enough so French observers could not see Wolf's ships stream past in the night, but light enough to illuminate the waters for the British boats. A modern historian explains what happened next. Quote, the British landing party took the small guard at top of the bluff completely by surprise. By a few minutes after 4 o'clock, a light infantry detachment had killed or captured all but one member of the French detachment who ran for the city to give the alarm. Montcalm had not worried about a British landing near the plains of Abraham, where he expected the cliffs and the bluffs of the shore to stand in for the entrenchments that lined the banks below the city. He made the same mistake many in history had made before him. Like sin, there is always a weakness in the defenses, and the plains of Abraham were the thermal exhaust ports of Montcalm's Death Star. At one point, he had dismissed the need for fortifications upriver by observing that, quote, We don't need to believe the enemy has wings, and a hundred men well posted could stop the whole army in that sector, end quote. Now his hundred men were dead, and the plains were streaming with British soldiers, who filled the ground like a burst ant hive. Half a mile away, six battalions of men in scarlet coats stood athwart the main road leading to the town in a long double line that stretched across the plains of Abraham. A British eyewitness tells his part of the story. 
On the 14th, we landed at daybreak and immediately attacked and routed the enemy with almost no loss. We then took up position on the plains of Abraham, whither Montcalm hastened with his whole army to give us battle. About 9 o'clock, we observed the enemy marching down towards us in three columns. At 10, they formed their line of battle, which was at least six deep, having their flanks covered by a thick wood on each side into which they threw 3,000 Canadians and Indians who agitated us very much. Historian Fred Anderson picks up the story, quote, by 10 o'clock, Montcalm had aligned his men before the massing English. Then he gave the order to advance, and the ensigns let the regimental colors loose to the breeze. An immense shout went up as the great mass surged towards the long double line of British soldiers waiting 500 yards away. Two hours before, Wolfe had ordered his men to lie down to make them less inviting targets for the enemy snipers and light cannon who harassed them from the edges of the field. Now, as they stood up in ranks, the red coat steadiness was unmistakable. The men waited stock still, listening for orders. The French advancing towards the British began to break order almost immediately, before the first shot was even fired. The left lagged. The center pressed ahead of the right wing. The regulars tried to march, but the cheering militiamen lunged toward their foe at a run. The French delivered the first fire about 125 yards away from the British line. Then all order broke down. The regulars reloaded standing and advanced in a disciplined fashion, like they were trained to do. The militia threw themselves on the ground and reloaded as if they were fighting in the woods. Some ran forward, while others continued firing from their initial positions. End quote. Here's what an eyewitness said it was like on the ground. The French regulars then marched briskly up to us and gave us their first fire. At about 50 yards distance, which we did not return, as it was General Wolfe's express orders not to fire till they came within 20 yards of us. They continued firing by platoons, advancing in a very regular manner until they came close up to us, and then the action became terrible. In about a quarter of the hour, the enemy retreated on all sides. When a terrible slaughter ensued from the quick fire of our field pieces and musketry, we pursued them to the walls of Quebec itself. The British stood fast at the French lost coherence. They began firing on orders by platoons, reserving their climactic volley until the French were within 40 yards of their line. A British eyewitness describes the climax of the battle. A part of the French battle line began to fire at us too soon, and when they had gotten within about 100 yards of our line, they moved up regularly with a steady fire, and within 30 yards of closing we gave a general one, upon which a total rout of the enemy immediately ensued. As the last fragments of order disintegrated among the French, the British charged with bayonets fixed, chasing the fleeing man back to the city. The whole action had taken just 15 minutes, 15 minutes to decide the fate <laughs> of Quebec, a province that sent millions of dollars spent on a campaign in 1995, 15 minutes that decided a constitutional breakdown in Canada, 15 little minutes but they echoed throughout Canadian and American history. The whole action was over, and there were 58 dead and 600 wounded for the British, and approximately 644 dead and wounded on the side of the French. Wolfe, wounded in the wrist and chest at the beginning of the battle, bled to death on the edge of the field while his men ran wildly after the retreating French. A few minutes later, 2,000 French reinforcements arrived, one of Wolfe's able subordinates, Lord George Townsend, rallied two battalions to face the French. When the French reinforcements saw the British guarding the road, they withdrew, assuming it was impossible to link up with Montcalm at Quebec. The soldiers slept in the field. 
At 10 o'clock at night, we surprised the French guard and took possession of their grand hospital, wherein we found between 1,500 sick and wounded men. We slept on our arms all night, and in the morning we secured all the roads that were of any consequence leading to the town. Then we entrenched at 100 yards distance from the walls. We likewise got up our 36 heavy cannon and some large mortars to play upon the town. We were employed three days, intending to make a breach and stormed the city with sword in hand. But we were prevented by their beating a parley, and they sent out a flag of truce with articles of capitulation, and the next day, September 17th, we took possession of the city. Quebec was ours. Montcalm was mortally wounded in the battle when a charge of grapeshot tore open his belly and leg. On the afternoon of September 13th, Montcalm's old adversary, Vaudreau, assumed control and ordered the army to evacuate the city and march to Montreal. Quebec had fallen. New France's interior lines of communication were cut. All of New France, a mass of land that one time commanded thousands of miles, was reduced to the area immediately surrounding Montreal. Vaudreau composed letters to the king, desperately pleading for aid that never came. This is the foundation of Canada. Bloody battles, weeping civilians, depopulated regions, human sacrifice and ethnic cleansing, and how many of you knew about it before I told you? In the Second Battle of Quebec, the French commander attacked the British on April 28, 1760 at the Plains of Abraham. The British were defeated and fell back into Quebec. All the French needed were supplies and reinforcements to besiege Quebec and save New France. What a different continent North America might be if France sent the supplies and men or colonial forces desperately needed. But they didn't send them. The British Navy was too strong. The French had no choice but to retreat and leave Quebec in British hands. On November 3rd, 1762, France and Britain signed the Definitive Treaty of Peace in Paris. It was ratified on February 10th, 1763. The Peace of Paris transferred vast territories from French and Spain to British control. Britain acquired all of France's North American possessions east of the Mississippi River, not including New Orleans, as well as Spanish Florida, which at that time included parts of modern Mississippi and Alabama. The peace deal had huge implications for Native American society. Cut off from French and Spanish military supplies and trade, the Indian tribes in the interior were left substantially weaker in the face of continued Anglo-American pressure as colonists moved westward into the lands formerly guarded by New France's systems of forts and Native American alliances. There is tens of thousands of tragedies in our podcast tonight. Many of you listening are living in places and descended from the people that bore these tragedies. There's something in life more than nihilistic comments on Twitter. There's something in life more than pornography and the pursuit of pleasure. Friends, you've been given a great peace, and it came at a terrible price. Be a little nicer on the internet. Be a little better to the people around you. And remember, treat others the way you want to be treated. It's much better than going that other way. Well, that's it for this visit to the Great White North. Please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes and visit our website for additional content, thebattlecast.com. You can also email us with questions or comments at battlecastnet at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook that gets updated by me. Sporadically in between drunken bouts <laughs> and gambling. That's exactly how Facebook should be updated. And that's it for me in the North Georgia Bunker. I again want to thank everyone who contributed to the Beer Fund. I especially want to thank Mark from Birmingham. For all he does for the show, Mark, we appreciate you so much. We want you to stay safe out there on the roads, buddy. And everyone else, I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.